One of the early Buddhist ideas is that the human life plays out on this plane between this lower realm of demons, which were known as asuras, and they uh, largely took the shape of, of aggressive demons and then sexual, sensual uh, urges known as hungry ghosts, which were never satisfied. So there was uh, angry demons and hungry ghosts, which were seeking constant pleasure. So that was what was in the underworld. And then there was this heavenly realm of devas, which are angelic beings that are always calm and always chill, always having a really pleasant time. And we human beings exist somewhere in between. And the idea is that this realm was the perfect realm for enlightenment because we have just enough suffering. We have something to work. Devas, they're metaphors for those times in life when we're really completely at ease and peaceful. But when you're in that state, you don't really learn that much about yourself. You don't really learn how to hold those deep, difficult feelings, those all the emotional palette of the human experience. And when we're totally roiled up in anger or completely overtaken by lust or cravings for drugs or whatever, then we don't learn very much about ourselves either. And so the human realm was considered to be this place where we can actually get a great deal of insight. In the Buddhist psychology, there's these things called taints as well, which are difficult energies that want to come out and express themselves, sensual lust, fusion. And the Buddha was interested in different ways that we could learn how to be with these energies and live with them without, as he said in his middle way, without fully pushing them down constantly or ignoring them. With the arising of these taints, there's also a tendency to give birth to ignorance, which is a desire to deny, to not know about, to distract ourselves, to not feel our emotional experience. So just bear that in mind, and I'll come back to some of the Buddhist tools for uh, working with difficult emotions and difficult impulses in a moment. But let's go today to our 20th century hero, who for tonight will be Anna Freud, who was the daughter of a guy named Sigmund Freud. So Freud presented a uh, view of the human psyche, what makes us tick, three parts. The most uh, unconscious part that you're, we're unaware of is called the id, and it's this realm of powerful energies that are constantly seeking to erupt and surge. And in Freud's view, they were entirely sensual or aggressive. Heard that before? It's very similar to the Buddha's view of asuras. So we have these two powerful impulses, and Freud said the role of the ego, which is your largely conscious mind, is to figure out a way for you to discharge these energies without alienating all the people around you in your life. Uh, so hopefully you don't run down the street naked, jerking off, and throwing your feces at people. Not appealing. Just to make sure you know your dharma bunk.
<laughs> so uh, we're looking for a safe way to channel these aggressive and sexual impulses. And the role of the superego, the third part, is the internalization of your parents and society that wants you to accomplish more than just safely discharging your sexual and aggressive impulses. The superego is, establishes what's called an ideal to aspire to. Uh, so in a healthy way, your parents hopefully model for you the idea that you can achieve something in the world more than simply releasing your sexual or aggressive impulses in a safe way. Uh, the problem with the superego is it's also responsible for a lot of suffering. It's that voice in your head that tells you you're not accomplishing enough, that you should be doing more, that look around you, all the people you went to college with, they're making a lot of money or they're very successful, and why didn't you go to law school and blah, 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 blah. The superego can be a source of both aspiration and a source of self-loathing and beating up. And depending upon how your parents modeled for you what it is to be an adult will play a large role in that function. Sigmund, who really focused on the role of what happens when libidinal impulses come to the surface, he was really fixated on Freudian slips and all the different ways that the unconscious gets manifested in our life. Anna was really much more than any other psychologist of her time interested in adolescence and that period in her life when the child begins to develop an interpersonal life and identity. There was this advanced kind of anxiety called neurotic anxiety where along with the early anxieties based on separation, fear of being separated or abandoned by our parents or the people who take care of us, Neurotic anxiety is that something in us will come out that will make other people hate us or reject us or abandon us. That there's something in us that's so unlovable or so toxic that there's something that we've got to repress, keep down. The most interesting process was the way the ego and superego push down against our emotions because we're afraid of interpersonal rejection. We're afraid of all those, t experiencing again, all those times when we got, went to school and other kids laughed at us, or we played in the playground the other kids bullied us, or whatever. We all have these core early experiences where other people shame us, abandon, reject, make fun of us, ridicule us. And these core woundings, the only way we can explain them is by believing there's something in us leads to our being pushed aside, ostracized. And so we spend a lot of our lives learning to repress our full emotional experiences because we don't want to be authentic and we don't want to act spontaneously. We're frightened of what other people will see. In her famous book in 1936, she wrote a book called uh, Ego and the Mechanisms of Defense, or something like that title, and it became a kind of a Bible. She postulates a number of different unskillful and skillful ways that we can learn to be with all these difficult impulses and emotional energies, and how to, when our repression becomes unskillful, and skillful ways 
release and discharge all these feelings, whether they're aggression or sexual or fear or anger or loneliness or sadness, whatever we struggle with the most. So what are the unskillful ways? I'm just going to list a few. She certainly had quite a number. One is denial, and almost all families practice denial. That's the, I don't want to know about it, I don't want to talk about it, I don't want to acknowledge it's there. That's the family that when one member is getting drunk all the time, uh, we don't talk about it, or when one family member the last time completely acted in a horrible way, then as a family we decide we won't talk about it, or the time one of the family got pregnant, or, com or tried to commit suicide and we're not going to acknowledge it. That whole elephant in the room where we just do not talk about it. And that's, of course, the uh, stems from the earliest form of repression, which is, you know, if I don't look, it's not there. If I don't have to feel it. I don't have to acknowledge it. And of course, it doesn't work. <laughs> It's just like the other form uh, of repression where we try to forget when we've experienced really painful events by distracting ourselves. We go through a breakup or somebody we care about has moved away, we've been fired or we've gone through an attachment, displacement or whatever, and what we try to do is focus on watching television or Netflix binges or we try to... Uh, drink it away, or shop it away. And the idea is that if we're not thinking about it, it will go away. Now, what we subsequently know is that anything you try to push out of your mind doesn't go away. <laughs> what happens is any emotional experience that was painful not only is held in your conscious mind in the left hemisphere, but it's also stored in your right hemisphere in the unconscious mind. So you can get rid of something consciously, but it's still very, very much present in your unconscious emotional mind. And it doesn't go away until the feelings are fully felt, expressed to another person, and regulated. So trying to ignore bad things or trying to forget about bad experiences or traumas doesn't work. It simply creates what's called, in colloquial terms, emotional baggage. We can't trust other people or we're not safe around other people. We can't express ourselves because we'll be rejected. A few other forms of repression are uh, intellectualization, which is when we're experiencing an emotional situation to, or we made an emotional choice to deny it by trying to explain our choice as if there was, uh, um, you know, focusing on the ideas. So somebody who moves in with, with uh, somebody else and you say, uh, so what was going on? How did you come to that decision? You're cohabitating. That's a big step. And they say, oh, well, it makes sense. Our, our rents will be cheaper. You know? No acknowledgement of the fear, the anxiety, the joy, the excitement. It's just, it makes sense. And, of course, rationalization is a variation of that where we do something really unskillful or uh, socially awkward, and then we justify 
and try to get rid of the shame or guilt by explaining our actions in terms of, well, everybody else does it, or I've been mistreated, or I've been a victim, or whatever. Hypochondria is one of my favorites. <laughs> Hypochondria is a form of repression where people are so out of touch with their feelings that they feel their feelings as illnesses. And they develop the same anxiety that they feel for other people in the world towards their own bodies. Projection is when we, in our childhoods, we experience all kinds of painful ex emotions which we can't express. We can't express our sadness or our anger or our fear. And so, in life, when we go through similar interpersonal experiences, this huge amount of emotional flooding comes up as a way to discharge itself. Displacement is when we transfer anger from somebody that we can't express our anger to, like a boss or a colleague or somebody we're vulnerable with, we displace it onto somebody that we feel perfectly permitted to, uh, such as a roommate or a loved one or uh, a pet, I suppose. You know, the person who hates their boss so they come home and, I guess, kick their dog or something awful. Reaction formation, finally, is one of my favorites as well. It's when people try to undo a feeling by presenting the exact opposite. The world is filled with men struggling with their homosexual impulses by trying to be as macho and masculine as they possibly can. And boy, is that a sorry thing to behold. So, um, well, I suppose their hockey arena is filled with them. But, uh, and so there's, there's a whole wide array of, uh, of ways that we can unskillfully try to be with our emotional lives and impulses. The problem with all of these strategies that I've just listed is that they don't alleviate any of the real underlying emotions. They, in fact, they simply keep them down by constantly repressing and then finding unsatisfactory releases for them. So, because they don't release any of the underlying emotional energies, <coughs> what happens is those emotions keep coming back. And so we have to keep on relying on the same repressive strategies, Anna Freud said. So she came up with a list of skillful ways to alleviate these underlying emotions. The first, and one of my favorite in my family, was humor, which is to express <laughs> your anger your disappointment, your bitterness, your sadness, your loneliness, your despair, in a funny way. Yeah. It's called being Jewish, too. Yeah. <laughs> At least in my family. Uh, so the idea is you just put your, your guilt or your disappointment about other people in a funny remark, and you get to have it acknowledged. But at the same time, there's these nice quotes around it, that say, well, it's just a joke, but still, it's being expressed. Altruism is, the, is uh, sung about constantly in 12-step rooms where, and in uh, spiritual centers where uh, people are encouraged when they feel negative emotions to discharge the feelings of woundedness by taking care of others. And the idea is that by building up self-esteem and positive pro-social emotions, the underlying emotional 
suffering is alleviated. And there's a great deal of truth to that. Uh, in studies by Martin Seligman and Sandra Lee Bomorski and Jonathan Haidt and a lot of other clinical psychologists, people who do pro-social acts tend to actually be much more emotionally resilient and tend to recover from emotional setbacks much quicker. But the most skillful way to deal with emotions uh, and impulses, according to Anna Freud, was sublimation, which is a find a way to discharge all that underlying aggression or, or lust or craving in a safe way. So what does that look like if you're lonely, learn how to paint or express it in a poem. If you're angry, take up kickboxing or, you know, some form of physical activity. If you're struggling with uh, wanting to discharge uh, sexual impulses, that can be done through dance or, <laughs> I suspect, yoga as well. Why, why else are there so, is the internet littered with pictures of people in their Lululemon outfits with their legs spread wide. <laughs> Look at me, I'm so spiritual. Here's my crotch. <laughs> so, uh, those are <laughs> skillful <laughs> variations. So, what are some of the Buddha's techniques for releasing um, and being with difficult emotions and activations? Uh, in the Buddhist lore, a lot of these really powerful negative or difficult emotional experiences were expressed, as I said in the beginning, as demons, asuras, as Mara, this god that constantly came about when the Buddha was vulnerable. So there's all these wonderful metaphors in the Buddhist texts about how to deal with these difficult emotional energies. One is by welcoming. In the wonderful uh, lore of Milarepa, a great monk, he lived in a cave in Tibet, and he had to go out, and because it was very cold there, he would go out each day and search for firewood, and... Uh, he would return, and one day there, his cave was filled with demons who were using up every inch of his, um, his space. And there was also this scary, scary, scary demon. And so, uh, at first he tried to chase them out of the cave. That didn't <coughs> work. And finally he, he welcomed them, and he said, you can have half the cave, and I'll sit here in the other half and take anything you need, and it'll be fine. And when he started being uh, courteous to these uh, asuras, they all began to disappear. And then there was only one left that was really terrifying and fire-breathing, and being kind to that wasn't working. So Milarepa walked over to this demon and put his head in the demon's jaw and said, if you are uh, real, bite my head off. So this, of course, is a metaphor. The cave is the human mind. The going out for firewood is all those times in the day we have to be externally focused in the world. And the demons are what happens when sometimes we're caught off guard by our own sadness, loss, grief, despair, fear, anxiety, 
all those emotions that we struggle with. And what Milarepa does is first is welcome them, rather than go, oh no, I'm feeling these feelings. The, the attitude is, welcome, you can be here. This is, you can share this mind, this awareness with me. I won't chase you away. And then, in going to the demon's jaw and putting his head in it, that's a form of exposure therapy, where we, rather than running from the things that create uh, fear, we move towards and constantly, in a skillful way, push ourselves to turn towards that which we're frightened of in ourselves, our loneliness, our grief, and open to it. There's a lot of other suttas that go that are metaphorically the same. There's another wonderful story about a an anger-eating demon that the Buddha said is only conquered by being courteous to it. And everybody, the, ang- the demon grows bigger and bigger and bigger and more fearsome the more people would poke at it or try to chase it away. And it's only when you're courteous and kind and welcoming that the aggressiveness and the fearsomeness of this demon subsides. And so this is a way of when we're filled of those nights where we're uh, experiencing insomnia or our minds are filled up with worries or concerns or resentments, rather than relating to that as, oh no, I've got to get rid of this. This is a part of myself that I cannot be with. The spiritual approach is to turn towards it and allow it to be there and to welcome it, and to feel it. In one of my favorite Buddhist tales, the Buddha Karita, the um, Mara, Mara first came to the Buddha and his enlightenment and said, how dare you think that you have any right to find true liberation? What right do you have to claim true peace? And the Buddha just slaps his hand down on the ground. He doesn't answer. He doesn't, he doesn't argue for himself. He doesn't explain or justify himself. He says, this is my witness. And in doing that, he's simply saying, I have refuge in the present sensory, full embodied experience of being here. I don't have to prove myself to anyone. I don't have to run from anything. And just being alive in a human body is enough to give me refuge from all of this self-doubt. Just reconnecting with our felt experience. And in the Buddha Karita, when the Buddha is tempted by lust and by uh, these uh, Mara's daughters, Rati, Priti, and Tisna, who tempt him apparently with song, dance, and sweet talk, they say in the text, the Buddha maintains his calm by simply keeping his awareness internal. He sees them, but he also feels the lust, feels the sensations, doesn't act out on them, doesn't repress them, just opens to his experience. In latter-day Buddhism, we practice what's known as RAIN, where in our meditations, after difficult experiences, we hold an image that caused us pain, somebody rejecting us, a 
an interpersonal experience, something that we're worried about, and we just hold an image and then we just ask, how does it feel to not be in control, to be, to feel not loved, to feel not seen, to feel uh, disappointed, and we just hold the experience in the body. And that's, I think, the most beautiful way to process all of those angry and sad and lonely and despairing demons that we all carry around. Not running from them, not denying them, not believing that there's something unlovable about ourselves, but to truly embrace all of our human experience.